Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Michelle Maroney. She's a professor and coordinator of the Environmental Health Science Program at Ohio University. She also is the national director of the Appalachian Rural Health Institute. We talk about the health dangers involved in the current rollback of federal environmental regulations. Dr. Maroney, we've seen the EPA, especially under President Trump's administration, turning back regulation after regulation. People in favor of that say that it promotes business, it promotes jobs, uh, but others say there's a health cost to this. Uh, I assume you come down on that side. On the health side, yes, I do. Can can you explain, uh, just frame it for us, what we're looking at here? Sure. I think the first thing that I want to say is that it's really alarming what's happening right now. And I feel like we need to pay more attention to what is going on with regulatory rollbacks than some of the other uh, activities coming out of the White House because our attention is diverted. There are about 70 or so environmental regulations that have been rolled back, um, put back to agencies for further uh, study, or repealed. And it is alarming. And not all, all of these regulations have some impact on public health. It might not be an obvious impact, but there is some p- impact on public health. You say there's an impact on public health. Uh, I, I take it that that would mean that there are more pollutants in the air or in the water or we're, as a general citizenry, mm-hmm. exposed to more. So when we, when we talk about public health, we're not just talking about getting sick from eating something or breathing something in. Health in the public health field is much broader than that, and it includes mental health and well-being. And that is a World Health Organization definition. That is the health of the complete person. That It's not just an absence of infirmary or illness but it's the presence of feeling good. So even if there is not a direct relationship between something that I drank in my water 
if I'm concerned about contamination in my water and it's affecting my mental health and my quality of life, we consider that a public health impact. Difficult to quantify, which is one of the the big issues, I think, with the regulatory rollbacks, is that there is this emphasis on putting a dollar amount on everything, just, just dollar amounts that uh, are economic dollar amounts for jobs and for industry and tax breaks. And there's been a complete absence in any of the language for the regulatory rollbacks, whether it's an executive order or the, uh, the policies that are coming out of the federal agencies of the, of the word health. It's not there. There is no consideration of health in any of the activities when it comes to any of the environmental uh, regulatory rollbacks that are, are planned or already in process. And it's really alarming. It's really alarming for public health professionals. I know that many of the rollbacks have an impact uh, on our Appalachian region. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're the director of the Appalachian Rural Health Institute. I'm sure it's broader than just this. But what uh, actions are you taking as far as perhaps education in, in this particular area? So the Appalachian Rural Health Institute is really focusing on working with local communities to evaluate their existing public health conditions, because working locally is one of the most important things we can do. So some of the work we've been doing is helping local health departments prioritize their public health, uh, public health issues, that includes environmental health, and then coming up with strategies to address those that are of greatest concern. So that's one of the things we're doing. We're also um, working at the national level for the first time in uh, the history of the Appalachian Studies Association. We are going to host the Appalachian Studies, Ohio University is going to host the Appalachian Studies Association meeting in 2021. And that is going to really give us an opportunity to showcase our our commitment to the Appalachian region, the university's commitment to the Appalachian region, and a lot of research that's going on here uh, at the university for Appalachian issues, not just health, but a range of Appalachian issues. You uh, formerly were with the Ohio EPA in in the education uh, field of environmental uh, education. <laughs> uh, it seems like that sometimes is an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I started with Ohio EPA really in the in a wastewater division, working with communities to help solve their uh, their wastewater treatment problems. Uh, sewage problems. And as a matter of fact, one of my first projects was here in near Athens um, with a a sewage issue over near Trimble. And so that was um, a really eye-opening and compelling introduction to um, really significant environmental health issues in not just rural Appalachia, but in rural areas across the country. And one of those is wastewater and the contamination of the groundwater. And that can bring us all the way back to this national issue with regulatory rollbacks. There's one one rollback is really on my mind today, and that is the focus on coal ash impoundments. And there are numerous coal ash impoundments throughout the Appalachian region. These are wet or dry, but mostly ponds, you know, wet ponds. I was going to say, let's, let's describe these. Okay. Uh, as I understand it, uh, coal ash is from uh, a product of burning 
coal. That's right. Mm -hmm. It has to be disposed of in some way. That's right. And uh, the common way to do it is through, as you term, impoundments, which you started to describe could either be wet or or dry. Go go forward. Right. So the, the wet ones are, are the ones that are, are most concerning to me. So what it, what it basically is is a giant hole dug in the ground. Most of these were put into place and constructed in the 1970s before we had hardly any regulation. So they're not – they don't have any kind of liner underneath them. They're just soil. Okay. So – Picture yourself digging a hole in your backyard and then throwing your uh, laundry water and everything that you flush down the toilet in that hole. Once they have the hole and then they put the coal ash into the pond or the impoundment, they'll put water over it. Because think about ash. Ash is very light. It can blow away. It can blow away. away. That's right. right. So they have to maintain it so that it does, the ash doesn't blow away. So this is a, a solution to dealing with coal ash waste. And the largest coal ash impoundment in the country is here in Appalachia. It's um, in the the northwest, the panhandle of uh, West Virginia. Um, it is over th- 3,000 acres, I believe, 16, in, 16 in miles of shoreline. In one impoundment? One impoundment. It's called Little Blue Run. Um, it's an unlined coal ash impoundment. So built in the 1970s. So everything seeps down. So it seeps down. So you have groundwater, you have these groundwater aquifers, which is a geological formation capable of storing water. And over time, you have an unlined, if it's a landfill or an impoundment or whatever, you're going to have contaminants leaching into the groundwater. And groundwater is not static. It moves. It moves slowly or quickly, depending on the soil conditions. And even if the, the groundwater is slow moving, eventually this, the contaminants that seep through these impoundments can get into the groundwater and move and then possibly contaminate drinking water sources. So if someone, just to make this overly simple mm-hmm. for, for some of our listeners, if somebody would dig a well... Right. Uh, close to this, they could be digging to a uh, adequate supply of water, but that water could be tainted and contaminated. That's exactly right. And and we've always had a problem with adequate data, baseline data, for contamination of groundwater. We've always had a problem. And you see that playing out now with um, arguments about whether or not hydraulic fracturing contaminates groundwater. So for the public health perspective, we don't have enough hard data to say, all right, your groundwater was, it's contaminated now, but we don't know if it was contaminated 10 years ago or before you dug the well. So this is a problem. And that kind of that brings me back to a bigger issue. The coal ash impoundment issue, there is a proposal from the um, federal government to roll back how those impoundments are currently regulated. And as with a lot of the environmental regulations, the focus would shift from any kind of federal oversight to allowing the states to have more flexibility. That's the word you hear all the time. We want to give states more flexibility in regulating the environmental conditions in their state. And that just harkens back to this concept of the race to the bottom 
and I'll put air quotes around that. If, once you start giving states flexibility, what what does that mean? For some states, it might mean, like California, we are going to take stronger measures to curb greenhouse gas emissions. In other states, it might mean we're going to make it easier for you to put a coal ash impoundment here. And that will give us more economic, de- thinking that it would give us more economic development. Federal laws for environmental protection were set up to avoid this race to the bottom. Well, and now I feel like we're going completely backward. It's not only a race to the bottom, as you describe it, but it's also piecemeal. Be- because uh, at least with federal regulations, you have some overarching continuity. Uh, at least that's uh, intended. Uh, but if you turn it back to the states, you're going to have state by state taking different actions uh, or no action <laughs> at, at all. That's right. And I, and I got to think at some level it gets really confusing, to, to even to industry. It gets confusing. What can we do here as opposed to what we can't do there? Right, right. Uh, that type of thing. But before we leave the coal ash issue, it, it, as I understand it, we haven't talked about what is – the contaminant. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as a layperson, I, I understand that there can be mercury in it, there can be arsenic in it, right. uh, there can be uh, multiple other substances. Right. Uh, so uh, this is not a benign substance. No, it is not. And, I, and some of the groundwater monitoring that have been has been already done and published around coal ash impoundments, arsenic, you're correct, absolutely correct, that arsenic is one of the key contaminants that comes up in groundwater. And arsenic is a heavy metal, and it, it's, um, it's found naturally in rock, but it's also found naturally in coal, okay? So arsenic can cause significant health effects depending on the levels that you, you drink in your groundwater and for how long you're exposed. But it is a cancer-causing agent. And it also accumulates in your body. It's not something that, you know, it's something that over time. Not something that dissipates. Right. And the other, the other contaminant that is of concern from coal ash impoundments is radium. So coal can have a radioactive component. And radium is part of, of, is part of coal. And that can get into groundwater and you can be exposed to radium as well. And anybody who knows anything or you know, understands anything about cancer. That's you ask you ask somebody, well, what causes cancer? A lot of times one of the first things they'll say is, well, radiation. And so this is, you know, another another uh, significant health concern. And let's let's bring this to the fore. Uh, currently uh, and recently with Hurricane Florence mm-hmm. and uh, other natural disasters, but that's the most current one. There are a lot of these coal ash uh, impoundments in the South, in the Carolinas. In fact, one of the impoundments breached uh, and and the substances leaked out. Uh, natural disasters or natural occurrences obviously have an impact uh, on these. And if they're not regulated, would it follow that the impact might be greater? It might be. And, and you really bring up something that is of great interest to me as well, and is that is that relationship between natural disasters and what I refer to as unnatural disasters. And the unnatural disasters are the ones that we contribute to, humans contribute to, because of the way we use the land and we use the environment. 
the coal ash, I, I've, I've been like you and, you know, paying attention to Florence right. and, and I think differently about it than probably a lot of people do. I mean, I feel for people who lose their homes and I, and I feel for people who are injured and, and harmed in any way during a natural disaster. But I also think about what is happening, who's watching all the toxic drums and who's watching the hog farms and who's paying attention to the coal ash impoundments and, and what that, could potentially mean for future public health. The coal ash impoundments, I, I do want to say, it's not just a groundwater issue, like you mentioned about the breach. Right. So some of the way the coal ash impoundments are, are contained is through the use of dams. And there's a, there's a federal dam safety program that takes a looks at, looks at the structural integrity of dams. And some of these impoundments are rated high hazards, meaning if there was to be a breach, people could lose their lives. And we've seen some of these, um, the, the biggest one, the Kingston um, uh, coal ash uh, release in Tennessee. in Tennessee was one. I mean, you, could, you can look at photos of that event and you can say, I mean, you can see the magnitude, but what you'll, you can't see and is going to be more difficult to predict or even document are the health impacts that might occur in the future, even though we saw immediate health impacts. You can read stories of how scared people were and how worried they were that something was going to happen to their family. I mean, that is a health issue. But, you know, looking into the future, we can't predict what what could possibly be to come. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Also using the, the Florence uh, example as is, is sort of a focal point for other issues, you, you mentioned hogs. Mm -hmm. And uh, for our listeners who may not know, uh, hogs uh, obviously produce a lot of manure, and that manure has to be uh, uh, dealt with. And it is dealt with in many places by putting it in large lagoons almost – similar to the coal ash uh, situation. Mm -hmm. Just in, in the New York Times reported in, in North Carolina, there are 9.7 million pigs 
producing 10 billion gallons of manure a year. Now, is this this a major problem as well? Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm really grateful that you brought up a different type of um, contamination um, because I think one of the, the issues in my career in environmental health has shown to me is that when you talk to people about what are they afraid of that's going to make them sick, they'll say chemicals. I'm really scared of chemicals. I'm scared of radiation. Plastic factories. Plastic factories. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not going to drink water from a plastic bottle anymore, you know, those types of things. And that's fine. It, you know, you should look at the data and the science and you should make your own opinion, your own judgment on what you're willing to expose yourself to. But from the environmental health perspective, one thing that, that environmental health professionals do is try to hammer home, don't forget about microbiologicals. Don't forget about bacteria and viruses and parasites because we know if you take too many harmful bacteria or viruses or other microbial pathogens into your body, you're going to get sick. We can prove that. We've got good data that says if you drink uh, uh, water that's contaminated with um, a parasite, you will get sick. If you eat food that hasn't been properly prepared and it's got bacteria all over it, you will get sick. We know that. But I think that that's, those types of, of concerns are more um, people understand. They think like they understand them more and it's not as scary. So the hog farms, to get back to the hog farms question, those the contaminants you have there are contaminants that they're bacteria, they're viruses, they're parasites, and unless the the drinking water treatment systems, you know, get up and running really quickly, you could have um, some significant public health effects. And in a natural disaster like a flood, you have lots of concerns with hepatitis virus and you know any other kind of E. coli pa- bacteria. And so of, this is of concern as well. And of course, in, in the Carolinas, we've been having major flooding because of Florence, not just coastal damage, as often occurs with hurricanes, but inland damage and inland flooding uh, with the uh, amount of rain. Let's go back to the regulations, okay. if, if we could, um, and the rollback of the regulations. It always seems, as, as a layperson, that it sets up a conflict and a contrast. At least the media plays it as a contrast, and, and I want to get your opinion. Uh, if they roll back coal-burning regulations, uh, coal-fired power plants, uh, some people say that's going to bring coal back. And it's going to bring jobs back to places like Pennsylvania and West Virginia and, and to limited uh, uh, aspect of Ohio. If we keep the regulations, we're only protecting a small number of people. Uh, and if you compare jobs to the protection, Really, the risk is worth it. Only a few hundred people die, uh, but we're going to employ thousands of people. Does that contrast have to be made, or is it made for a, a political point to support deregulation? The second, your second. So this is something I've been thinking about a lot because when I first started working at Ohio EPA, it was 1991. And as I was 
there for about seven years, I worked on this project called the Comparative Risk Project. And at that time, Newt Gingrich was in office and we had the contract with America. And it was this, it's almost verbatim, some of the stuff we're hearing now that we were hearing back in the 1990s is, look, we've got to, we've got to, build the economy and environmental regulations are interfering with economic development. But there was a little more reason. And the reason was, at least what you were hearing from Washington was, we can have both. We can have a good economy and we can have a clean environment. And this project that I worked on at Ohio EPA, that was really the basis for it was, let's look at strategies that will allow us to do both. And, you know, I thought, it looked like we were making some progress, that we were shifting, the, the country was shifting to energy that was renewable, that also created some jobs, some jobs that were sustainable, not just temporary, let's build a pipeline here, and, and once the pipeline is built, we'll move on or find something else. And now we are going backwards we are, and the argument that you have to make a choice between having a job and having a clean environment is an argument that is asking people, well, what's more important, your survival or whether or not you can thrive into the future? Why can't we have both? And I, I have some very strong opinions on the the kind of the smoke and mirrors of, all right, we're going to create a bunch of jobs. Don't don't worry about the environment. You know, it's not even they're not even saying don't worry about the environment. They're not saying they're saying nothing. There's silence. There's silence on the health impacts. We're just creating jobs. We're just creating jobs. And if you create jobs, of course, you're going to improve the quality of life of people who are who need the jobs and families who need the jobs. And there are many families in rural America especially in Appalachia, who need the jobs. But then are you giving those families the opportunity to use what they're earning to improve their health? Are you, are you setting up a public health infrastructure? Are you giving them access to health care? If you're going to create a job and then take away their health care, that just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And if you're going to create a job that's going to contaminate the environment, that's going to make them sick, and then don't give, you know, take away access to health care, where does that get you? Where does it, it just doesn't make any sense to me? And it's, it, 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 am I correct that it's not just the the people uh, living here now who might get sick as yeah. a result of the deregulation, but there's an uh, an impact in the future. Uh, where they're talking about their children or their grandchildren because aren't there accumulative uh, effects that that may be damaging? Right. And the the chronic nature of or the the long-term nature of of the effects too. You know, if you are never going to say that I got cancer because I was exposed to a coal ash impoundment 30 years ago. You're you're never going to be and, and science is never going to be able to determine that. So, you know, that comes down to the whole question of, well, when when we regulate, should we be taking this approach? It's called the precautionary approach and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't do this until we have the science that supports it's not harmful. Or should we be saying, go ahead and do it until we have the science that proves that it is harmful. 
And right now, we are our 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 federal emphasis moving it to that second. Go ahead and, and you know keep doing what you're doing. Do more of this. Do more of that. And when I'm out of office, those studies might come up that show that it's caused a health impact. And it, I do. Can I just say one more sure, thing about absolutely. about the jobs the jobs issue too? Because it concerns me greatly when I hear politicians talking about the number of jobs that a potential project is going to bring. And that right. is particularly the case when you look at things like hydraulic fracturing and other energy development projects. Take a look at those jobs. Take a look at who is laying the pipeline. Is it your neighbor or is it somebody from Texas? Is Are these long-term jobs with good benefits or are these short-term jobs with an hourly wage and no benefits? Ask those kinds of questions because it, it just, not in every case, but in many cases, communities, local communities are really suffering and are willing to, to agree to um, maybe some uh, activities and, and um, programs that they might not have agreed to if they weren't in such dire economic straits. And I believe that they can be taken advantage of. And ask that more questions have to be asked about, all right, where are you getting your job estimates? And, you know, what kind of jobs and how many local people are going to be employed? And what's the impact on and show me your numbers before you agree to contaminate your neighborhood? We've talked about uh, your concern, and, and you've talked about it really being alarming that some 70 uh, regulations, have been, environmental regulations have been rolled back. What's on the horizon that causes you pause? What, what's, what should we be looking at next that might be a target of deregulation that would have a major impact on our lives? Mm-hmm. Oh, there's so many. It's hard to pick just one. I I think that I think the the climate change is is one of the many that I'm concerned about. I mean, I I don't know how many people realize that um, when the President Trump signed his executive order in March of 2017 to take a look at the clean power plan, um, part of that was also to rescind the president's um, climate change action plan. So we have no, and, the, and I, f- I forget the exact title of the, of the policy, but it was uh, something about preparing the United States for the effects of climate change. That, that's gone. Um, and of course, we, we got out of the Paris climate training, and all of that was part of, was part of this. But the other thing that I'm not sure that a lot of people have paid attention to was he also revoked this interagency work group um, on the social costs of carbon. So some of the social costs, that's where you you start to talk about, hey, what about health? What about health? That's a social cost. But that that work group is gone. And that was a federal work group that included representatives from several agencies that had some influence on climate change policies and activities. It's gone. So what, what, the, what that says to me is that there's no concern with the current climate about health today, about health tomorrow, and about health you know, 10 or 15 years from now. 
One last thing, and that is if somebody out there is listening um, and they get motivated by what you're saying, what can the average layperson do besides vote? Obviously, they can vote for different people in, in office. But besides that, mm-hmm. you know, what can they do? What can they uh, feel like they're actually making a difference? Try to pay attention. And I think that I, I, am, I am so guilty of this. You know, I, I, when I look at the news every day, I look for, okay, what's happening with the Supreme Court nomination and what's happening with, with the Russia investigation? And I, I have to remind myself, pay attention to The what, shiny object syndrome. Right, <laughs> exactly. Don't, don't let these keys over here divert your attention. Right. But I, just pay attention. And I, I would direct listeners, if they have internet access, um, Harvard is actually keeping track of the environmental regulatory rollbacks. Um, if you do a search for Harvard environmental rollback, I think it's rollback tracker, they're keeping track. And you can, you can look at the 70 or so regulations and what has been done, where they are, and at that site as well, if there, is, if there is something that's available for public comment, you can take a look at that regulation. You can click on the public comment, and you can put your two cents in. And do it directly, and do it directly. In, at one site mm-hmm. uh, so that uh, you don't have to jump around the Internet. Mm-hmm. You can do that all in one site. Dr. Roney, thank you so much for talking with us today on on this important topic. I hope you'll come back and talk to us in the future. I I don't think we're finished yet. Thank you. I I would enjoy that. Today, we've been talking with Michelle Maroney, a professor of environmental health science, about some of the health dangers caused by rolling back federal environmental regulations. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Also, WOUB Public Media has launched a brand new podcast called Lifespan. On Lifespan, you'll hear stories about encounters with the healthcare system. Each show contains stories bound by a common theme, a person's personal journey through a particular type of medical trauma. You can subscribe to this new podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or at the NPR Podcast Directory.